right. How's everybody doing tonight? Yeah. Sounds like we're, we're high energy, so either, either those midterms went really well, or just don't care anymore. No, I don't. <laughs> Amen, somebody. Now, I'm really glad to be here tonight. We're going to be continuing our series on Nehemiah, Legacy, and Leadership. How many of you guys, is, is anybody here for the first time at Regenerate tonight? It's okay, don't raise your hand. I wouldn't embarrass you like that. You've been here before. Um, but for those of you who have never been here before, welcome. This is a ministry of River City Church, changing the world for Jesus, one person at a time. My name is Sam Maines. I'm the college ministry director, and uh, I love... Uh, doing this because, and we love gathering every Thursday night because one of the things we do is we talk about what is the most, by far, the most important text in all of human history. We look at it and we observe what does it actually mean for us today, and if it actually is written by God or inspired by God, it must mean something important for us, right? And I, here's what I wish I could tell you, that tonight's passage is going to move you, it's going to just... Go, it's just gonna it's gonna be so emotional, like you're gonna get real with Jesus tonight. Yeah. There's gonna be a glory cloud that falls in this place. You're gonna see gold dust. There's gonna be angels singing. You're gonna hear, oh my goodness, it's gonna be amazing. I can't guarantee that. It could happen. But tonight, this is a passage of scripture that on all, by all accounts on the surface is not that exciting, but I will tell you something. That the deeper you look into the Word of God, the more interesting and unique and incredible it really is. And so we're going to get into it tonight. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. It's not a genealogy, is it? Um, no, but it's close. So uh, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of words, specifically names of people and places oh, that are difficult to pronounce. So tonight I'm going to give you a little bit of a lesson in Hebrew pronunciation. Luckily, I did study ancient biblical Hebrew for a year and a half while I was in seminary. It was a good time. It was a hard time. It was a dark time <laughs> in my life. Anyway, um, I am a graduate of Western Seminary where I got my Master's of Arts in Biblical and Theological Studies. Um, we're in chapter 11 of Nehemiah. So let me just kind of recap, though, as we've been talking about legacy and leadership Many of you may, uh, some of you might be familiar with the story of Nehemiah, some of you might not be. Uh, it's one of those stories in the Old Testament of the Bible that is the portion of the Bible written before the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire Bible. The entire book centers on him. But then just before this, though, this is about 400 years before Jesus arrived. So give or take, it's about 460, well, it's about 446 B.C. is actually a pretty fairly close calculation for when the book opens, about 446 B.C., by the time we're in chapter 11, Nehemiah, who is the governor of the, of the province of Judah, he was sent by the king of Persia because of a miracle. Basically, he, was, he asked for God to give him favor, and he did. And the king sent him to Judah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You're like, why do I care about a city in the ancient Near East? And why does that have any bearing on my life today? Because God had made a promise to the people of Israel. Somebody say, you made a promise. God made a promise to the people, and he said to, to their ancestor Abraham that he would bless the entire world through his offspring. So it was through the nation of Israel that people were anticipating the coming of one that the, the rabbis or, or religious teachers called Hamashiach, or the Messiah. The Messiah was the one who was going to come and change history, because he was going to atone for the sins of the world, 
So every evil thing that anybody had ever done, it would be it would be dealt with in some way by this Messiah. And somehow the enemy of God, the accuser, would be destroyed. That he was he was uh, in the in the book of Genesis, he appears as a serpent. Um, and so the, this serpent was going to be destroyed by the work of God. And so everything in this, so they, the ancient people of Israel, they believed there was objective evil. They believed that there was evil within themselves that needed to be dealt with. And they also believed that the world they lived in was evil, and that had to be dealt with as well. Eventually it would all be dealt with by the Messiah. But until that time, what they needed to do was prepare a kingdom. Somebody say a kingdom. They needed to prepare a kingdom so that the king could come and reign in that kingdom. And so Nehemiah's whole project up until chapter 11 has been rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem and he starts rebuilding the wall and they rebuild it around the city. And uh, it's not like that kind of wall. It's uh, the... Uh, <laughs> It's the wall of Jerusalem. It is, it is the protection of Jerusalem, okay? Think of it like nowadays we have cybersecurity, okay? Think about it that way. Like that's the way you keep your life safe. Back then you didn't need cybersecurity, but you needed literal security. So you would you build a wall around your city to protect said city. And so, to, but then uh, here's the issue though. <laughs> here's the first question I want to pose. How do, you, how do you populate a dangerous place? Because here's the issue with Jerusalem. At this point in history, Jerusalem is, is in a very small area in the Middle East, surrounded by enemies, okay? Surrounded by non-Jewish people who basically hate Jewish people. Why? Because they're like, they think they got the corner on God's plan. Of course, they didn't realize that God intended to bless the entire world, and that included them through this people. But, you know, jealousy, how that works. So, and all that kind of thing. And so, they, uh, so they're surrounded by enemies, and also it's just common in those days to fight against each other, like all the time. So here we are in Jerusalem, and this is where the story begins, for, uh, or where, it's, where, the, where we pick up in chapter 11. Because up until this time, um, the people of Israel have had no sense of identity. They've had no sense of themselves. And finally, in chapter 10, Nehemiah has not only rebuilt the wall, but Ezra, the high priest, has come and he has preached the word of God to the people of Israel and to the, to the people of Judah. And it seems like things are finally rising up again, like hope is rising in the people of Israel. See, for years they had been trampled by foreign powers. They had been run over by the, by the nation of Assyria. They've been run over by the nation of Babylon, and then they've been exiled to Babylon. They had lost so much of their culture. They, the only thing that they had, basically, was their language and their traditions, and that was it. They were, they were colonized. They were done for, it felt like. But finally, they come out of Babylon because the king of Persia, when Persia took over Babylon, allowed them to go back. And so it was a miracle that they're even there. But at this point, they have a goal in mind. They're like, God still has a promise for us. So we need to prepare the way for this promise. We need to rebuild the city so that we can reestablish the worship of the one true God. So they rebuild the temple. And it's this amazing moment where the law is read for the first time in generations. And people hear it and they're like, these are the words of God, our God, who loves us and who set us apart for his purposes. We've heard his word. And it is into this moment that chapter 11 begins. Are you guys ready to read a lot of stuff? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> because uh, it, it is a lot. But I'm going to read a little bit, and then is it okay if I preach a little bit tonight? Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah. So just tell me if you're if you're not cool with that. But if I it is okay, and if and if something that I preach tonight speaks to your soul, you got to say something like, Amen. Amen. Yeah. There you go. Like Amen. amen. Yeah. Like Amen. Or like Hallelujah. Or like Get it, girl. Get it, girl. That that works too. <laughs> That's one of the favorites around here. Anyway, um, 
So, this is where Nehemiah chapter 11 picks up, is right after um, Nehemiah has, uh, they've basically sworn this oath to uphold the law of God. And the last words that we heard, last time we heard out of Nehemiah, he says, we will not neglect the house of our God. And it's like, yes, yes, things are finally coming together. And this is chapter 11. We're going to go quite a ways because we're going to go chapter 11 and then about halfway through chapter 12. And then we're going to call it good for the night. So here we go. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And Jerusalem lived, and in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. And Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kolhose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shulamite. And all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Coliah, son of Messiah, son of Iphiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitu, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work on the, of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Joram, the son of Palaliah, the son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Hashur, son of Malkijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amashai, the son of Azrael, son of Azai, son of Meshulamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolin. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrikam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni. And Shabbatai and Jazabad over the, of the chiefs of the Levites who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Mataniah the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah the second among his brothers. And Abda the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jedithin. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmud, and their brothers who kept watch of the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel, of the priests and the Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his, his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Othel, and Ziha and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pathahiah, the son of Meshazabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And after, this is verse 25. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba in its villages, and in Dibon in its villages, and in Jacobziel in its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Moladath, and Beth Pelet, and Hazar Shual, and Beersheba in its villages, and Ziklag, and Mekonah in its villages, and Emrimon, and Zorah, and Jarmuth, Zanoa, Adullam in their villages, Lakich in its fields, and Azakah in its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba outward, onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitayim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebelet, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. 
chapter 12, verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel and the son of Sheltiel and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluch, Hatush, Shekuniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Ido, Ginnathoi, Abath, Abijah, Mijami, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amak, Hilkiah, Jediah. These are the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Binui, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashub, Eliashub the father of Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jedua. And in the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshullam, of Amariah, Jehonanan, Jehoanan, of Malachi, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Marioth, Helkai, of Ido, Zechariah, of Ginnathan, Meshullam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilgah, Shemua, of Shemaiah, Jehonathan, of Joyarid, Matanai, of Jediah, well, hold up. Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Uzi, of Amak, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nethanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jediah, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, Jeshua son of Jozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. This is God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do what only you can do. This ancient text seems like a recording of names where we go, what does this have to do with us today? But God, your word says that every part of scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for correction, for building us up in righteousness. So right now, build us up. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would be your words, Lord God. And so let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock our Redeemer, in whom we trust. And everybody who trusts in Jesus said, Amen. 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 Wow! Wow! <laughs> Read this passage, passage and the whole time you're just getting like the Pentecostal shivers going, Oh! 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 Man, that's good, right? It's good. It's good. Preach it, you know. Just like those names, though. Shekinah, Shep, you know, can't Chevron, Uzi. I got that guy. <laughs> you know, I... Chevrolet and you know, all those things, guys. You know, I think sometimes we kind of joke around about, yeah, man, man, these names, names are so weird. But I guarantee you, first of all, if these people who lived back then looked at your names, if they're like Sydney and Kamaikin and Samuel and oh. Vance and Duke, Duke, how do you say Douglas? Okay, they. First of all, they'd be embarrassed at your names too. Like, I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Okay, I don't know. I, I'm not even gonna try it. Jim, Jermaine, why does your name have an accent over the E? I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Jermaine. Anyway, um, but let me, you know what's interesting though? Here's, what, here's what's interesting about this passage. As I was studying this, I found something really important. And I don't know if you caught this running through. 
first of all, the importance of worship in the life of God's people. Do you recognize that throughout this whole passage, there are so many points where it kept talking about, and we need to get singers in here. We need to get a song going. We need to keep the fire burning in the house of God. And so we need to have some people who are dedicated to worship, dedicated to the things of God. And also what's really interesting, too, is we're going to focus in a little bit, most, mostly on the beginning of chapter 11 and then the very end of that portion of chapter 12 at some very significant things. Because here's a question. How do you populate a dangerous place? Jerusalem wasn't exactly a safe space. It's like, hey, you know, travel agents are like, move to Jerusalem. You know, you might get killed on the way, but it's fun, you know, <laughs> once you get behind the wall. <laughs> um, so it was not exactly a safe place because God's people didn't really want God's people to be there. But then this is interesting. It's like it says at the very beginning uh, of chapter 11, it says this. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And we kind of expect this, right? Nehemiah, the governor, the, the high priests and the, and the leaders of the Levites and all these, we kind of expect these people to be living in Jerusalem. Why? Because they are the spiritual leaders of the nation. They had this vision from God that if we can somehow reestablish temple worship, if we can rebuild the wall, if we can make this place safe again, maybe we can re-inhabit it, and maybe God could do something. A great leader has great vision, right? Good leaders inspire other people to follow. And so the leaders lived in Jeru the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. We read this in, in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, and in chapter 12, verse 26. This is interesting, though, because I think that this is what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about living on the edge. Because this is not just a list of people. This is a list of people who are willing to live on the edge for the sake of the kingdom of God. They saw something valuable in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They saw something valuable in the cause of reestablishing the temple that was very, very important. Because the, the survival of Israel, the survival of Jerusalem was not just for political stability. It was a spiritual thing. Somebody say it's a spiritual thing. They knew it was a spirit, a, of great spiritual significance because they knew God's promise was going to be fulfilled there. Here's the question. What things of great spiritual significance are you living, willing to live on the edge for? Because listen to this. These people are going to a dangerous place. And we have Nehemiah and the, and the others living there. But this is the thing. We expect that. Why? Because we expect spiritual leaders to take risks for God. We expect that. We expect our pastors to take risks for God. We expect our spiritual mentors. We expect the people that we, that we look up to spiritually to take risks for God. But many of us, if we're honest, get a little bit scared when it comes to us personally taking a risk because we're not sure if we're up to the task because we don't think that we are spiritual enough. And here's the deal. We expect spiritual leaders to take risks for God, but life, life in the kingdom sometimes feels like you're living on the edge of danger a little bit. Ooh. And, I'm, and I'll talk about what that danger is later on. I'm not like, you're like, you're like I don't want to be a Christian. That sounds terrible. I like my safe life. You know, I, I bought home security. I have insurance. Um, anyway, 15% um, Geico saved yeah, on garnish. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> the lizard one. I listened to the commercial. I got Geico. Anyway, um, life is lived on the edge of danger because there's there's a threat on the outside, right? There's threats from the people on the outside. We have the we have the, the the kings of the Arabs and the other people around Jerusalem who are trying to destroy the people in Jerusalem. Secondly, there's work to be done on the inside. The city is probably not in great shape. It's not like oh wow, people have picked up trash here for the last like 20 years. No, it's probably trash, 
right? You walk through the city, you're like, this is trash. It's trash everywhere. Like, this is, it's smelly. Especially, and like the building project, there's a bunch of stinky construction workers everywhere. There's, 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 there's stuff, there's, you know, if you've ever been to a construction site, it's a mess until the house actually comes together, right? But this is the thing. Good leader, this is, this is my first point is this, the, about, about living on the edge. It's, it's a point that I want to make about leadership, and it's this, that good leaders inspire other people to follow. I remember when I first, um, <laughs> I was going to seminary, and I had to take this course on like how to, uh, like your spiritual gifts and stuff like that, and, and uh, this, like, this like test thing said I had this spiritual gift of leadership. So I went to Pastor Kevin, um, who was mentoring me, and I was like, oh, I got the gift of leadership. And he was like, that's cool. Who's following you? I was like, my, uh, my cat, <laughs> you know, like, I, don't, like, I, I, I don't know, like, I don't know who's following me, no, no, I, uh, no, no one, I guess, and, um, but the thing is, like, I had to learn how to become a leader, so I actually, I voluntarily decided to lead a life group, and I decided to lead in youth ministry and different things like that, so that I could learn to exercise the gift that God had given me, right? See, good leaders inspire other people to follow. I was inspiring zero people. Okay, so this is what I love, though. <laughs> this just cracks me up. So it's like other people follow. If you see a spiritual leader who goes and takes a risk, sometimes you're like, yeah, I can do that. Like, I can move to the Philippines and sell my belongings, be an awesome Christian and see miracles and stuff like that. I can totally, totally do it, you know. But, you know, I, if maybe I'll do it after... I hear confirmation from God like three times over and like I get like somebody gets a very specific uh, spirit like prophetic word is like you shall go to the Philippines and then you're like okay God spoke to me and then it's like confirmed in my Bible and then like I meet like five people from the Philippines randomly and then after that like I randomly like have a Filipino cooking class or something like and then like I'll wait for like 50 signs before I decide to go and take a risk. I'll wait for like 50 signs. You know what I love about this though? And this is a take home for you guys. Gambling is the will of God. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. Let me clarify. Wait, wait. Holy Spirit, come back. Chapter 11 verse one says, so the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So this is the, I love this, they cast lots. Now nobody actually knows much about what lots were. Many scholars assume that it might have been like a jar, or like some kind of pouch where you had a couple of objects, maybe a couple of like shards, or stones. Um, it's the word goral, and it's, it just means like a, it's like a it's like the same word that's used 26 times in the book of Joshua to describe an allotment. Like, this is your property line. But it's like, they would, it basically alluded to the idea of like figuring out where the lines fall. Here's what's crazy about that, though. You might go, so the people of Israel gambled. Wow, that's great. What a great example they set for us today. Like, I, my parents always told me gambling was bad, so I'm not going to do that. You know, there's lots of other things your parents told you you shouldn't do that you have anyway. But anyway, that's for a different time. <laughs> Yeah, gotcha. Anyway, um, here's the thing. So, like, yes, it, th this is the thing, though. It's not actually, it wasn't actually gambling. What it was is these people had, knew what was at stake. They knew the right thing to do, okay? Number one, they knew the right thing to do. Um, and they, they also knew that it wouldn't be wrong for them to stay home because they needed to grow crops. They needed to support the building project in Jerusalem. 
So it's like, okay, I have one of two good choices to make, okay? So if you guys, and you guys are at this stage in life where you're making decisions about what kind of risk you're gonna take, and when it comes to the risks you take in college, whether it's your career or a relationship or whatever, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, is it right? Are my options on the table right? Where it's like, um, graduate with a bachelor's, kill someone. Which one is it? Like, obviously, <laughs> like, graduate with a bachelor's. Yeah, go for the good one. Go for the one that you know is morally incorruptible. Okay, so there's that one. So they know that there's two wise good, wise choices in front of them. One is to stay home and support their families. Two is to take a risk and go to Jerusalem and live in the city so that the city can be supported, right? So what do they do? The people trusted, this is what is incredible to me, is that the people of God at that time had such a trust in the sovereignty of God and in the fact that he, they believed so strongly that he was intimately involved in the details of their life that they believed that when they cast these lots, the way in which those things would fall on the ground was the manner in which God had predestined it before the foundations of the earth or is the way in which God wished to express his desired will and God wouldn't allow something to happen that wasn't in his will. So therefore, if we do this, we know that it's right. That's trust. So actually, I'm not, I'm not saying go out and gamble. What I'm saying is trust God. That's what I'm saying, okay? So they, they said, okay, we have two wise choices in front of us. Let's just roll the dice. Let's see how it goes, right? We see this happen actually all the way up through the book of Acts. where they The last time we read about gambling is when they, uh, they roll dice to replace Judas, which is like a weird part of the story. Anyway, um, they, anyway so they roll, they roll the dice and then they one out of every 10, one out of every 10 families. You, so it's like you, and then roll the dice, you, roll it again, you, roll it again, you. And they just, they firmly believe that God was involved. Do you believe that God is actually involved in the small details of your life? Yes. Do you believe that God is sovereign, not only over the ends, but also over the means? Yes. Because if we don't believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that everything just happens according to the things that we do, that's a lot of moral responsibility on your shoulders. Amen. But I'm here to tell you that Captain Jesus is not about to let his ship get off course. God's will will be accomplished in this life. And you can trust God. With every detail of your life, you don't have to believe in, in all the minutia of like predestination, all that stuff, to know that God is trustworthy and that his plan will come to pass. And so these people trusted God. And so one out of every 10, they take a risk and they go to Jerusalem. That's crazy. Because, and then the emphasis we see was the establishment of spiritual life in Jerusalem. They weren't just going to Jerusalem and be like, hey, I'm going to open a business and it's going to be nonprofit. And, you know, like, it's like, and, we're getting, and I'm going to develop artisan light bulbs. And, like, you know, it, it wasn't just like there to go, like, do a cool business idea. It was there so that we could, they could actually reestablish God as the center of life. They go in there and we, re, we know this because, first of all, it talks about priests. Priests are the people who are going before God. To, to worship him. So we have in, in chapter 11, verses 3, 10, and 20, and in chapter 12, verses 1, 12, 22, and 26, priests are mentioned several times. So there's, there's these groups of priests. And then there's Levites. Levites are like the, the Robin to the priest's Batman. They were the guys who were like helping him out with everything. And the, pre, the Levites who are, in chapter, are mentioned in chapter 11, verses 3, 15, 20, and 22, and then in chapter 12, verses 1, 8, 22, and 24. And then we have singers. Somebody go, ah! Ah! or not. <laughs> I got to do that more often. <laughs> Everybody go, ah. Oh. Yes. 
Try that low note. We have singers. Did you know singing is biblical? Did you know that it's, it is actually biblical to lift up God's praises and that there's something powerful about the fact that singing is, has been at the center of, of worship since like thousands of years ago? It's powerful. And that's why we sing, our, sing songs in churches. Not just because our parents do it or because that's the right thing to do and this is the time we stand. You know, like, we, and, we, and we solemnly sing our hymns unto the Lord or whatever. I think that these people are hired because they're like, we got to get some rock and roll going in this, in this place. I need to, yo, somebody get me that organ. We're going to start singing because we need to sing Jesus' praises in this place. Yeah. We need to make something happen. We need to lift our hands. We need to wave hankies and say amen and say, we need a move, yeah. You know, like, we yeah. need some worship happening in this yeah. place. Amen. And so... Singing is powerful, a powerful part of that. Then we have gatekeepers, because you need security. Praise God. Um, so like, we're going we're gonna to reestablish worship, and we are also going to keep the place safe. Some of you guys are that person. We're like, safe. Yes, I will keep you safe. Some of you are packing heat. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hopefully not, because... Anyway, um, we have then we have temple servants. The word there is literally given ones. It's the people who gave themselves to the service of the temple. They're mentioned in verses 11, 3, and 21. Or chapter 3, 11, verses 3 and 21. The gatekeepers are mentioned in eleven nineteen. But I love this. The other people, in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 11, it mentions the people from Judah and Benjamin. And these are random people who are willing to serve. Random people who are willing to serve. They're like... I don't even know my job description. I'm not a Levite, so I know that I don't make, I'm not a priest, so I know I don't make sacrifices or do atonement. I'm not a Levite, so I know I don't take care of all the temple instruments. I'm not a temple servant, so I'm not exactly cleaning out the stalls after sacrifices are done. I'm not even a singer because I can't hold a tune. And I'm not a gatekeeper because I'm short and not intimidating. Um, or whatever, you know, like I... I'm none of those things. I don't fit the description of what a spiritual person does or what a spiritual person is supposed to look like, but I'm available. Yeah. I'm available and I'm going to go. And I love this, that people from Judah and Benjamin were just like, sign me up. I'm going to go. And this is the thing. They were willing to risk some things for the kingdom of God. They were willing to risk leaving their families and going into the city to start something new. They were willing to go outside of their comfort zone to go, I'm going to see the kingdom of God get established. Random people who are willing to serve. Turn to somebody and say, are you willing? Then answer honestly. I'm just kidding. You don't have to. See, here's my... See, good leaders inspire followers, but also here's the thing. Here's the second point, and this is something I really want you to understand. That spiritual risk... Excuse me. Spiritual risk is not relegated merely to the clergy, but to the call. See, in our culture, we like, to, we like to minimize spiritual things for spiritual people. So we say somebody with a collar or with the title pastor, they will do spiritual things. They will do the prayer. They will do the worship. They will do prophetic words. They will speak in tongues. They will pray for miracles. They will do that thing. But I'm too normal. I'm too fill in the blank for that kind of thing. I'm not spiritual enough. But I'm here to tell you that spiritual risk is not for the clergy. It is for the call. Right. 
The book of Romans says that, that he calls us, right? God effectually calls us into service. And when he does, it doesn't matter whether you're from the tribe of Benjamin or Judah or Levi or whatever tribe you're from or whatever people group you're from or background that you're from or who your mom or your dad were or whether you were a Calvinist or an Arminian or whatever. You've been called, brother or sister. Amen. So if you've been called, you've got a risk that you might have to take. And some of you guys are only here tonight because you need to know tonight that God wants to call you to a new season of risk. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. There are some new things that God wants to put on your plate tonight, and it begins with taking a risk. Are you willing to step into the walls of a place that looks dangerous for the kingdom of God yeah. to be built? Yes, yes. <laughs> See, this. Look, let's look at some of the things they risk, okay, before we wrap up here. Number one, they risk their lives, right? They go into Jerusalem. There's people all around the city. They know this. But one out of every 10 is like, sign me up. I'm going to go do it. I'll do it. I love that. Did you ever hear, uh, there's the story of, uh, I think it was Ernest Shackleton, the guy who was exploring the South Pole. He put out a big ad for, hey, if anybody wants to come, low pay, high risk of death. We're going to freeze our butts off in the Antarctic. Anybody want to come? They could not turn enough people away. This is back in the 1800s. Yeah. And they were like, <clears throat> he could not turn people away fast enough because there were so many young men who were like, yes, I've been looking for adventure, you know, and, like, and they wanted to risk life and limb. But there's something inspiring about the kingdom of God that will cause you to put your life on the line. Now, some of you guys, some of you may end up having to put your life on the line. And there are places where that's happening. Just a couple weeks ago, there was a, a mega church in China that was bulldozed in the middle of the service. Get this. In the middle of the service, because the atheistic communist government didn't approve of what they were worshiping, and so they tore down churches. They're burning Bibles. People are dying in places for the name of Christ. Regularly, over, over in the Middle East, we hear about, if you've ever read any stories about ISIS or the caliphate that's going on there, people are routinely beheaded, executed, tortured for the name of Christ. In fact, there was a number of years where some scholars were predicting that if we didn't do something, Christianity was going to be wiped out in the Middle East within the next 10 years. Where's God calling you to risk your life? Get on to Christianity today. Look at, listen, look, go to voiceofthemartyrs.org. Check it out. There's lots of places where people are risking their lives for the kingdom of God, where they know that saying yes to Jesus is not just like saying, oh, yeah, I raised my hand on a Sunday. It's like, I'm going to give my life for this. And that's it. No going back after this. Secondly, they risk their comfort. And I think this applies a little bit more to us today. How uncomfortable are you willing to get for Jesus? Because see, we can come here to regenerate. We can come to church. We can do our thing. And you can be part of a cool club or you have your friends and you have your cliques. And I have to confess to you guys, when I was your age, I was a clicky guy. Okay, I had my clique of friends and we didn't really let people in. Okay. Because we were just having fun and doing our thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't have your best friends. Of course you are. Jesus had James and John and Peter. But he also had the 12. And he also had the 70. You know, he also, and he had far more after that. More than 500 people saw him after he was resurrected. And those are people who are all somehow connected to Jesus. So like, here's the thing. is like, what are you willing to risk comfort-wise? Are you willing to get uncomfortable? Look around you. There's somebody here will fall through the cracks this week unless somebody gives them a text or a call or invites them to hang out. Even here in this room. 
people that you think that are really well connected are going to fall through the cracks. And you all know this because you have all felt lonely at some point when you needed somebody to reach out to you and nobody did. So, are you willing to get uncomfortable? Yeah. Let's go. Thirdly, they risked their longevity. They didn't know how long it was going to take. They didn't know how much work it was going to do. They were going to have to do. They didn't know if it would pay well. Probably not very well. But um, they were willing to risk their longevity. Like, they were willing to put their careers on the line. It's like, my dad was a farmer. And his farm, dad was a farmer before him. And his dad was a farmer before him. And his dad was a farmer before him. And his dad was a farmer before him. And by me, uh, and, and they're like, well, Elmer, we want you to go to Jerusalem. Well, I don't, I don't know if I could go. We rolled the dice and you're in. Oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here's the will of the farm. You know? and, so, and then off Elmer went to... Actually, I think that wasn't Elmer. His name was, uh, yeah, Mishillamuth. Anyway, uh, so... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and lastly, there's a risk of failure. Um, I think in our culture, <laughs> we suffer from this, which is, I, I don't want to take a risk because I might fail. I don't want to take a risk because I might fail. I want to calculate it all before I do it. And so then, uh, and then I'll go and do something, something great in the spiritual realm. I'm here to tell you guys that the risk of failure, don't let that abrogate your willingness to take a risk. Because if you don't take a risk, that is going to lead to more failure than not taking risk at all, than taking risk in the first place. No risk is a failure by its, in and of itself. God calls us to take risks sometimes. Sometimes to lay our lives on the line. Sometimes to lay our comfort on the line. A lot of this was exemplified in Luke chapter 9, when several people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first, let me go bury my dad. And then Jesus is like, let the dead bury their own dead. You're like, geez, Jesus, that was harsh. Right? And then he says in, in Luke 9.62, Jesus said, Nobody who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. You're like, wow. So how am I how am I supposed to okay, this is all great, but how am I supposed to do this? The good news is you can't. But you have a God who can't. See, God was working through the casting of lots, yes. He was working through the leadership of Nehemiah. He was working through all these things so that his kingdom could be established. See, they were willing to risk their lives. They were willing to risk their comfort. They were willing to risk their longevity. They were willing to risk failure for the kingdom because they saw that it was worth it. What's really worth it to you? Nice job, a house, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, a man or refrigerator, Nice dishwasher, riding lawnmower. Yes. Amen. Right. Director. Netflix. Disney Plus. Amen. Disney Plus is part of God's will, right? What's really worth it to you? What is the deep of the deepest value and importance to you? Because what is of deepest value and importance to you will often determine the choices you make. I just want to close by saying that so when I was uh, when I was young my parents moved around quite a bit um, I was born in Santa Cruz California uh, I lived there for uh, like a couple of years and um, after a couple of years my parents left and they moved to Hamilton Montana lived out in Hamilton for about a year or so lived out in the Bitterra good place to be beautiful land yeah out in the Bitterra not the Bitterroots that's you're not from there unless it's the Bitterra but <laughs> Then we moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeek. 
live in Las Vegas, Nevada. Went to kindergarten at Doris Reed Elementary School. Still remember that calendar where I learned my days of the week. Yellow and laminated, and they put cheesy turkeys on it for Thanksgiving break, you know. Cheesy turkeys. That was uh, not cheesy turkeys. That would have been great, though. Um, went to went to Dor went to Doris Street Elementary. Rode bikes on the street with my next door neighbor Dusty and Mikey and Timmy from across the street, and we would hit the the plant the two by fours, you know, and like um, with the cinder block and with no helmet on, and because it was the '90s and parents didn't care. So um, we're gonna do all kinds of crazy stuff. Then we moved to Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Yeah. Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Yeah, yeah way yeah, up yeah, north. Yeah, yeah. Population 2,515. Went, lived there from age 7 to 17, and when I was a senior in high school, we moved to Lewiston, Idaho. Yeah. Whenever I tell people this story, they're like, did your parents move because, like, was your dad military? I'm like, no. First of all, there's no military base in Bonners Ferry. Okay, so, uh, although there's enough guns for a military base, it's not a military base. Um, also, and the, people say, oh, so you, you're, did you move for your dad's work? Nah. Military family? Nah. Um, so like, why, why, why'd you move? And at, when I look back at my family history, I realized my parents moved all the time because they felt God called them to go somewhere and they would just go. Yeah. I'm like, that's nuts. Like, I've asked my parents that and now that I'm an adult and I'm an adult, I'm like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? <laughs> if I, like, taking your, let's, let's take our three young children and just move them across the country, like, rip them from everything they know. I mean, I turned out okay, except yeah. that I feel really antsy when I stay in one place for too long. But um, <laughs> anyway, the point is this. My parents lived by faith, and they would go somewhere because God called them to, and there were some relationships that connected them. And I wouldn't be here if my parents hadn't followed the call of God. I could tell you the whole story in, in, at some point, but I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have, found, I wouldn't have met Jamie, you know? Actually, what would have happened, I would, if I wasn't in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, I would never met this kid in eighth grade named Largent Reed. Yeah, Largent. Largent and Chargent. I was in ninth grade, he was in eighth grade. And I remember those days, it was good times in high school. And because of the friendship that I had with Largent and others, I moved down to, to Lewiston. His niece used to come over and visit from time to time, and eventually she moved to Lewiston. And uh, I fell in love with her, and she became my wife years after that. Now we, have a, now we have a daughter who's two and a half years old. Uh, I've been yeah. fully invested in a church that has trained me and has, and has prepared me and has stewarded a lot of the gifts in me. Because, And I believe God's not done with this yet. I don't know where the future's taking us. But the only reason you guys are here is because my parents moved around and did some stuff by faith. Yeah. At least that's half the equation. Part of the equation. Small part, maybe. But this is the deal, though. Living by faith means sometimes taking risks. So the big question in, in groups tonight is this. What would you be willing to risk to build the kingdom of God? If you're not comfortable answering or you don't have much experience with Christianity, don't worry about it. But here's the big thing I want you to understand. God took a big risk on you. See, 400 years after Nehemiah, God's promise came true. And a man named Jesus arrived. And see, we know what risk really looks like when we look at the life of Jesus. Because on the cross, right, Jesus... Jesus took all of our sin upon his shoulders. And right before that moment, he had spent time with the Father saying, God, if there's any other way, I will do it. If there's any other way I can do this, I will do it. Please, I just if there's any other way that I can pay for the sins of the world without dying for everybody, if there's a way I can do that because I know how awful it's going to be, is there any way out? And it was as though God took Watts in heaven and said, sorry, we know this is it. You're going. 
you've been picked. And he's like, I know. And I'm going to do it. And I'll do it gladly for them. Amen. Jesus went to the cross with you on his mind. He died in your place for your sins. And so that every evil deed that was ever done to you and every evil deed that you have ever done would be washed away by his mercy and his grace. If you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and that he is God as he claimed to be, you will be saved and your life will be changed forever. Amen. So the question in small groups is, what would you be willing to risk to build the kingdom of God? What would you be willing to risk? When you think about how much God risks for you, how much would you be willing to risk? And, I want, and let's just be honest. If you're like, I'm not willing to risk my money, then just say it. <laughs> um, you know, whatever it is, something is holding us back, right? There's always something. And now for this week's announcements. All right, so first things first, this is really loud. Um, we have the sign-in sheet. So we ask you to sign in every week. So um, if you've been in the last, I don't know, month, month and a half, your name is on that sign-in sheet. If you're new tonight or your name is not on that sign-up sheet, we need your information. So red tab, there's a page where you can fill out your information. Check if you want to be in our worship night text updates. Yeah. Um, we also have Friendsgiving next Thursday. Um, so it's like Thanksgiving with your friends, and you get to do it twice in one month. So once with your family and once with your friends. So yeah. Um, but we need help with food because this is a lot of people to cook food for. So we also have a sign-up sheet, the lined paper, that you'll write your name and what you plan on bringing. It will be next Thursday at Sam and Jamie's house at 6 p.m. So don't come here. Go to Sam and Jamie's house. Address is on the screen. Um, well, also, Google Maps. Yep. Um, this Sunday is Adopt-A-Block. It's every third Sunday of the month, and it's a great opportunity we have as um, believers just to come together and love our community. And so Adopt-A-Block, they meet at the Adams Lane Apartments downtown at 1245. It literally only takes like 45 minutes of your time, and it's a basically a mobile um, food pantry that they go to this um, neighborhood and apartment complexes and people come and get food to get them to the rest of the month and the things that they need. So it's really cool to meet those people and just be there to um, serve them and meet their needs. So I would highly recommend that you come. Like I said, it does not take all afternoon. It literally takes like 45 minutes. So um, also there's no worship night this week because this week is River City's global celebration and that will be Saturday at River City Church from 630 to 830 and there's um, like food and dancing and you get to hear about the really cool things that the church is doing um, locally and like um, around the globe and that'll be really cool. So tickets are for sale at the door. They're $10 or you can pick them up tomorrow at the River City office if you want to but you know um, convenience. So yeah that's all I have for you. Jamie has one more announcement for you guys. Yeah. yeah. You must pull that whole speaker down. So, okay, a lot of you have been, I feel like I'm really loud. A lot of you lately have been asking Sam and I a ton of questions about spiritual gifts. So, what we are going to do is tonight, if you would like to, we are opening up our house. So instead of going to Applebee's, you can come to our house and we're just going to hang out. We'll have dessert and snacks and such and hang out and just talk about spiritual gifts. So if you would like to come, please like come talk to me and Sam after 
Thank you. After our dinner is over, we're gonna all like meet at the front and talk, and we're gonna try to see if we can figure out carpooling. Um, I don't want to annoy our neighbors because who knows how late this is gonna go because I feel like this is something you could talk about for hours and hours and hours. So come talk to us at the end. We'll make sure that you have our address. We'll try to figure out carpooling, but come hang out with us and talk about spiritual gifts.